Welcome to The Rising Tide, a podcast for career-driven women to find inspiration, find courage, and find their voice. On today's episode, I speak with Dr. Liz Reedford, Asylum Officer for U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Dr. Reedford has an incredible jungle gym career path that she walks us through to getting to her career today. We learn about how the major rejection opened up a door to where she was truly meant to be and how losing her father at 18 has helped her take risks in her life. It's a good one, y'all. Enjoy. I'm joined here with Dr. Liz Reedford. Welcome to the Rising Tide. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, we're so excited to have you. And um, Liz is currently an asylum officer with the Department of United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. She has just completed her doctorate in law and policy at Northeastern University. And we're so excited to learn more about your journey, how you got to where you are today, um, and share some of the, the things that's allowed you to, to get to where you are. All right. So Liz, I, I mentioned that you just recently graduated with your doctorate. This is a crazy time right now. It's with COVID and graduating during a pandemic. Um, help us, help paint a picture for us about the rigors of the program. So you mentioned a cohort. How many people started in the cohort with you? Um, so our cohort started out with about 32 people. And okay. I think at this moment, um, around 10 of us have finished. Um, a lot of people have dropped out for many reasons, you know, life, um, different circumstances. So it's definitely not something to take on um, if you're not ready to really marry the program and really dig into it. Right. Was that, did, did you see a lot of fallout when COVID hit or had that kind of happened prior to COVID? Um, so for my cohort, um, you know, we were all scheduled to graduate June or July of 2020 was sort of our um, deadline. So by March, you know, the, the group of us that were left in our cohort were pretty much, um, we were in versions of finishing at some point or, you know, we were kind of nearing the final term, the final chapters of our writing and things like that. Um, there were definitely people who COVID caught up short a little bit. And I think that comes from, um, because the program was so intense, there really wasn't room to get off track, to get off schedule. Um, but it was this bizarre type of program because you are both incredibly scripted and what you need to get done and when, but you're also still in a doctorate program, which is incredibly independent. So I think that those two things, um, there were people who had a, had difficulty staying into like getting their independent work done um, while also staying within this time frame, the rigorous time frame that we were on. So I think when COVID hit, people who had sort of gotten off balance or who had issues that had come up with their research or things like that, um, I think that mountain for them was a lot higher than it was for others. Um, and so it, it definitely shook our cohort a little bit. Right. Yeah. So it was one of those where if you didn't have a, a strong foundation in place, you know, something like a pandemic, <laughs> might might be the final straw to push you over the edge. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's you are an accelerated program. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like it was about a thirty percent completion rate yeah. uh, from people who started to finish. 
and you mentioned it was really independent. So how, you know, what, what sort of things were you doing to help ensure that you stayed on track? Um, mm-hmm. Especially in something like this where nobody's really making you, right? This is, it sounds like it's very self-led. Like what's, t- tell us a little bit of some of the strategies you had to make sure that you, you stayed on target um, leading up to COVID. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's funny. I feel like in undergrad, I think we all go through that time frame of our lives where like you have a paper due at 8 a.m. and you stay up till 5 a.m. like writing it desperately and like manically. I think we've all been there. And um, as I have evolved in my life, I hate that feeling. You know, I don't like that feeling of, oh, it's due at eight. I'm, I just, so I have done so many things in my life to avoid that feeling and especially in this program. So I was not only in my doctor, but I was working full time at the same time. So there's only so many hours in the day. And for me, um, it is not realistic for me to say, okay, I'm going to ignore all of this all week. And on Saturday, I'll give it 10 hours because I know myself and there's no way I'm giving it 10 hours. I'll give it an hour and then I want to go do something else. So, so for me, it was definitely, um, strategic planning, honestly, of like looking at what was coming, not only just that week, but sort of down the line. And my planner became my like child that I just had everywhere because it was like, if I know I have 50 things due on Friday, well, how, how can I break that up? So every day I'm knocking out stuff. So then on Friday, I I just kind of turn it in, you know, I turn in the rest of the things. Um, And that saved me and it allowed me not only to stay on track and to do well in the program, but it allowed me to have a life too and travel and see friends. And I didn't feel tied so intensely. I did at moments, but there were other moments that I felt very, um, I enjoyed the, the work. It, it was a really, so that was one thing. Um, and I also just found ways to keep the things that I needed in my life present, even while I was doing that. So I didn't like to just think like, Oh, I can either exercise or I can do my homework. It was like, I invested in a, standing walking treadmill desk so that I could work and kind of move because I know that's the best version of me when I can do that. And, um, I think just building in it, I, that was like one example of a system, but it was like building in those systems for myself that allowed me to stay sane. Um, things like getting books on audio so that if I can't sit down and read it, but I'm driving somewhere, I can stay up with the thing. So there was just so many little micro systems that I put in place that helped me totally maintain balance at at the same time of producing an incredible amount of work every day, every week. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's great because it sounds like it was a combination of being structured. And I love you talk about, there's only so many hours in a day and there's so much around, you know, why is it that some people can seemingly do so much more with the same amount of time? And I think you you broke that down as far as how you you were very disciplined and how you structured your time and breaking things, big things up into smaller bite-sized chunks. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, an understanding of yourself. So that, you know, this was a, this was a marathon, not a sprint. And that in order to sustain your continued focus, you were going to have to take care, like your self-care was a priority. Yeah. So that's really, really great. So self-care and then also, you know, being very, very intentional and disciplined with setting up your time. So great. 
congratulations again, because it's such a huge accomplishment. And we'll hopefully next time we check in with you, you'll you'll be able to tell us about this incredible celebration that you've got to have with your friends, your cohorts. Um, And, you know, maybe it'll be a year delayed, but that the celebration day will be there. All right. So Liz, asylum officer, I've got to admit, this is not something that I normally in my social group is a title that somebody holds. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and I'm guessing, you know, this is something that a lot of us maybe don't have um, experience with. Can, tell, can you tell us a little bit, you know, walk us through what's a, what's, what's a typical day like for you as an asylum officer? Yeah. So an asylum officer's position is to um, interview and adjudicate, which just means decide, um, cases. Uh, so to interview people who have come to the United States from their country and said, I'm, I have a fear of returning. So my job is to interview them, listen to their, their story, their claim, and determine if what they've gone through matches what the asylum protection, the humanitarian protection that asylum offers them matches. So it's a lot of listening and a lot of decision-making and a lot of applying legal boundaries and things like that um, is, is ultimately what we do. So again, this is an incredibly, I would imagine, difficult job um, because you're you need to balance an understanding of of the law, but also these are humans. These are stories that you know you're making. You're having to make decisions that will significantly impact the individual or individuals that you're talking with. So you know, I know without going into to details or specifics, but how do you stay rooted in mm-hmm. being able to one make the decisions? Um, even when they're hard? And then how do you continue to do it? What, what kind of is the drive to continue doing um, something like this that is incredibly challenging? Yeah, um, I, I definitely have always had a um, connection and a, a profound respect for, for refugees and, and people who have had to leave their home and their comfort um, and to search for a place of, of safety and of home, that idea of home. Um, so this is a population that I've just always gravitated towards and wanted to understand and wanted to uh, help seems kind of a silly word, but, you know, to, to be to be part of that system that allows them to find that place, to find a new home. So I had done other work with refugee populations in in other aspects, you know, when people come to the United States helping get their apartments set up or helping them go to the grocery store and things like that. But I I had always felt like the legal system was really where that decision for their lives was made or broken. And so to be part of that legal system, I take it very seriously, not only that I learn and understand the law and interpret it, you know, as that is as written now, but also to, in that one-on-one interaction with somebody, to offer them that comfort and that space of safety, even if that's all I can do for them. Um, Because even if at the end of the day, um, you know, asylum is just one humanitarian protection among others. So trying to maintain the integrity of that legal system, but also being respectful to the person in front of me, um, I take both of those very, very seriously. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it, it sounds like there's a, there's a deep passion for the work that you do. Mm-hmm. And as you've explored interacting and, and getting involved with refugees, really the place where you feel you're contributing the most meaningfully way is understanding the law 
um, interpreting it the way it's meant to be interpreted. And then even in situations where asylum can't be granted, still wanting to provide space and empathy for those that are sharing their stories and are going on this journey. Yeah. And so I think that's powerful, you know, to know, to know that that's why you're doing what you're doing. Um, and I would, I would imagine it's probably very helpful on, on the days that are the hard ones. Yeah, I mean, it's a complex, um, it's a complex situation that people are in. And, you know, I know this gets a lot of attention in the news, which can be really difficult. Um, And it's also the reason that I love the work that I do, because I think no system is perfect, but I don't know that we can I think we have to have a deep understanding of the system before we can implement changes um, or to really make a change that is best for everyone involved. Um, And so I am incredibly grateful to be getting sort of that frontline view of like, okay, what are the challenges in this? And I think it will inform any of my future positions or any roles in policy that I might hold later um, because I do have this understanding and I have this passion for this population. So it's, um, I, I feel like sometimes I'm in a great learning um, exercise of this time of just really taking it all in and seeing like what is working and what's not working and maybe potentially how do we improve this, you know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So getting, you know, that experience to helping be part of creating an even better future. Yeah, absolutely. How did you end up landing where you are and deciding that this was the career that you wanted to pursue? <laughs> okay, you want the long version or the short note? Um, <laughs> yeah, so I definitely have not taken a really typical path in my career. Um, I, I was not lucky to be born someone who just knew what they wanted to do. And so instead, I feel like I'm someone who kind of had to try a lot of different things, figure out what fit, what didn't fit. Um, and so, yeah, it's been kind of a a winding road of picking out from different jobs that I've had, different qualities that I'm looking for. And ultimately it led me to this position. Well, okay. So I have to know. So it sounds (laughs) like you, you had tried all, you said you tried all kinds of different things. So what, what sort of things, what was kind of, give us a little bit of a sampling of the path to where you are today. Sure. You know, so I've always been interested in travel, international um, aspects, global cultures, different things like that. So my first job out of college was amazing. I, um, it was a small family run um, travel magazine that specialized in high end rail tours all over the world. So it was great. I got to, I learned a lot, got to go on a trip um, on one of the train trips to kind of document that. And so that was a really great experience. Unfortunately, I did enter the job market right around 2007, 2008, (laughs) as we all know, was kind of a trying time. So, um, that position wasn't really sustainable just as far as it was kind of entry level and different things like that. So I had to make some decisions in that position and moved back to my hometown and worked as a project coordinator on a short-term project doing um, training. Actually, I was coordinating a training for medical personnel on um, electronic medical record systems. So yeah, it, it was awesome. It was really busy, but I got to take ownership of the project and get things done. Um, and yeah, I, I love the autonomy of it. So there was a lot that I learned that I hadn't done before that um, kind of inspired me to recognize some of the parts that I liked, like being busy, being kind of um, in charge of things, <laughs> uh, get it, having a project that you can see 
the end of getting getting it done successfully and that kind of thing. Um, but it did. Uh, it was temporary. It was a project that once it was finished um, was ending. So I started making decisions of what was coming next. And it had always been my dream to go and work in Africa, um, doing humanitarian work or anything that I could find. So as this project ended, I, I made connections kind of randomly with someone who was visiting in our hometown. And he offered to sponsor me and allow me to go to Ghana and actually set me up in a school to teach English. So this was a huge dream come true for me. I really honestly thought like, this is my life's work. Like I'm finally doing it. This is it. So yeah, I went and I spent a little, um, I think a little over four months there. Um, and honestly, it was really hard. I, I did not love it the way that I thought I would. It did not like speak to my soul the way I had always imagined this experience speaking to me. <laughs> and um, when I came back, I really just... I was really discouraged. It felt like a piece of my identity that I had felt so strongly about my whole life was just, I was just kind of confused. Like, what do I do with this? Um, And I came back, this was now in 2010 and I came back and the job market was still not great, but I had picked up pieces of things that I really loved when I was in Ghana, you know, more of a simplistic life, the just like seeing issues at a very basic level. Um, and I wanted to find a job that matched that in the United States. And I had, I, I, a random friend was talking about these wilderness therapy programs where students come and get behavioral therapy, drug rehabilitation, those kind of things. So I just started looking into it. And it's such a unique job that I think I was lucky to get hired <laughs> because I don't know that everyone would just go for it. But um, yeah, so I got a job as a wilderness therapist and went out to Utah. It was really unique. We lived eight days in the wilderness and then had six days off um, to kind of travel and explore. So it kind of was this perfect vagabond nomadic life that um, I kind of needed at that time. And it was a it was a really great experience, not totally sustainable, at least for me. Um, it wasn't the again, it wasn't the position maybe that I would have hoped of just like, yes, I have found my calling, like this is awesome. But it definitely had pieces that I liked. And I wanted to continue working with people who were trying to better their life and yeah, just to make a difference in their life. So I came back uh, or I I got a job as a family um, specialist teaching family communication skills. So we would go and kind of like super nanny, if you want to think of it like that, kind of go in, observe, see what's going on, and then just offer um, techniques, better communication, which I think all of us can use. Um, But this position was really interesting because while I loved the idea of training and teaching communication skills, I learned very quickly that I really, really disliked social work. And to all the people out there who are doing social work, oh my gosh, you are, are so important to this world. And I am in such awe of people with qualities that can do that work. Um, because it just, it was very clear to me that that was not my skill set. Um, so once again, I kind of found myself in this position like, 
all right, so I thought I wanted to do this humanitarian work. It wasn't what I thought I wanted to do, you know, work with youth and families. And that's not where I fit. So it was just a very kind of disillusion, just not really knowing where, what I was looking for next, knowing what I wasn't looking for anymore, but not really what was coming next. So I decided to fall back on the, um, the same software that I had been the project coordinator for of the medical record systems. And I decided to apply to the, that company directly. It was a really, it was one of those young trendy companies. You know, when you do the tour, they've got all these cool <laughs> areas and open spaces and things like that. Um, so I applied, I got the interview, you know, and um, I was a little bit older than the the demographic that they were used to interviewing. So they were really interested in me for several positions. They kind of were like, hey, which one of these would you be interested in? And I was like, this is great. <laughs> we spotted one in the wild. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So I was really confident. You know, it was like, um, but this was not in, in Utah where I had been living. This was in Wisconsin. So it was like, it was like a move across the country and they had pretty much offered or, you know, made it very clear that one of these positions was going to be mine. They just wanted to make sure it was a good fit for me. So I was in the process of moving and all of this. And suddenly I get the call that they've pulled this position, all of them really. And I still don't really know why, um, but it was pretty devastating in that point in time. So, all right. So let's pause here for a second because I think we haven't even scratched the surface about how you got to where you were, but I want to stop because there's so many good things that you've already talked about, which is really interesting, which is um, rejection can be a really difficult thing, especially when you'd already picked up, moved your life. And at one point felt like you had three offers on the table. So mm-hmm. how, like, can you can walk us through what kind of, what that, what the impact of that experience was on you? Yeah. So, um, you know, there was a little bit of a survival mode feeling, I think when I first came out of college. Um, but I did feel very fortunate that I, that, that I approached things and was able to, um, get opportunities, you know, not easily, but eventually (laughs) they would come. And if I, usually if I had an interview, it would, it would go well and then move from there. So I felt very grateful to have some of those skills And that's this combination of sort of feeling like I was in a survival mode, but also moving forward and also gaining some experience um, that sort of carried over into the interview with Epic. And so it was kind of like a sigh of relief of like, okay, great. Like this is not only going to help me keep surviving, but it's actually going to, you know, increase. It's a better position, um, higher pay, those kind of things. So I was relieved to think that, great, I can finally sort of get into a position that moves me into a different level. And so then when that didn't work out, it hit me on several different levels, actually. You know, there was first, um, because of the job market not being solid, I didn't feel like I had a lot of choices necessarily in what I was doing. So I turned it into just gaining experience in a lot of different things. But ultimately, I didn't feel like I could just go choose what I wanted to do. And so um, when Epic fell through, um, it was the first time that I realized that I had been relying on other positions to sort of give me the identity that I was at that moment, if that makes sense. So it was like, okay, well, I can't necessarily go work for, you know, um, a development agency, but I'm going to 
I'm going to go work for this travel magazine and it'll be fine. And that will be my identity for this time. But so when that fell through with Epic, it was this a little bit of an identity crisis because first of all, the job position didn't go through, which I'd never experienced. So I was like, wait, what did I do wrong? Like what, what's wrong with me? Um, what do I do now? But also like, well, now what? Like I've sort of been dependent on these other opportunities that have come up because I didn't feel like I had much choice. And now suddenly I have this time to really take a hard look at, at where, what choices I was making and what opportunities were available to me. And if there were skill sets that I needed to actually get to where I wanted to be, to give myself those choices that I wanted. So it was, it, it was definitely a really difficult time. I mean, it took me, it kind of took me down a notch a little bit and just really gave me the opportunity to step back and think about what choices I had, what I wanted to do, what skills I needed. But it was a very, it was, it was a little dark. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's really interesting. You said something and it, it seemed like so much of the, the jobs that you had gone for and gotten, like there was a purpose behind them. Like you were normally, um, like as you described it, you, there was, you know, you learned something new about yourself from the job that you were in and you used that to seek out what you wanted to do next. Right. Um, and as you talked about this and that you were in survival, the market wasn't really necessarily great. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a, you know, call it safe option. Yeah. So for the first time, you actually shifted your decision-making criteria. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put it. It was before it had always been motivated by who I felt I was authentically, um, the experiences that I wanted to have in my life. I wanted to make a difference and to feel meaningful. And this was the first position that it was like, look, I just need something that is stable, that has good income, that, um, you know, the work's fine. (laughs) It, It might be fine for a while. So yeah, you're right. It definitely wasn't in line with the way that I had chosen other things. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I, you know, and you, you said something else that was really interesting, which is um, kind of that identity crisis of like, I've never not gotten something I've gone for, like, what's wrong with me? And I, you know, I think that's always a really, that's a very normal reaction when you're um, facing a rejection or, um, you know, something that is seemingly so qualified for, but, you know, now it's in looking back and having hindsight, um, realizing that you're reason for choosing it was it you you kind of drifted from staying true to what had always guided you and and then it sounds like then after that experience you were able to get back to that and ultimately you know because you didn't get set on this path you ended up starting your path in higher education at USI Right. Which is really, really, really great. You know, hindsight's such a beautiful thing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is such a beautiful thing. Yes, no, exactly. And you know, that that wound was pretty deep for a lot of years, actually. I mean, it, I carried it with me, but I think in a in probably a good way in the in the long run, because to feel that rejection and to feel that and kind of have to come back from that, it builds something in you that then you carry into other positions and you don't you don't let it get to that point where you're depending on that job offer or another position to give you that that sense of identity. You build that on your own regardless. And then you are free to really listen to that authentic person of you saying, well, now, well, what then I, what do I want to do regardless of 
what it looks like or what it pays or any of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that you can reflect back on it and learn something from it. I think so often when we're faced with a setback, um, and especially one that is as significant as this, that you're able to look at it, learn from it, and then use that in a meaningful way as you move forward for your career. Yeah. That's, thank you. Okay. So that's, that's really helpful to, to understand. So we left off in Wisconsin um, yes. and, you know, a move has occurred and a job was expected and then an offer never came. So pick us up there. So still not seeing the path to becoming <laughs> an asylum officer. So right. help us continue the journey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was uh, just a really, it was a really low point. You know, it, not only like you feel kind of embarrassed and like ashamed that like this didn't work out and, you know, all of a sudden I'm like nannying and like just kind of living this really bizarre life, feeling like I'm not living up to the potential that I have or what I'm looking for. Um, but at the same time, it also revealed, it gave me time and a little bit of space to really step back and be like, okay, like let's reflect on the things that I've done. Let me reflect on the, the qualities and positions that I felt were my strengths and the ones that were my weaknesses. And let me start really figuring out where I can be a good fit and that it's going to be a good fit for me. So it gave me a little bit of um, time to do that. So I eventually came back to my hometown again. (laughs) And um, I um, really started recognizing that education was such a huge push for me and working with young people. You know, I had, like I mentioned, I lost my dad at a really uh, young age right before college. And I feel like if there had been somebody on campus that had, that had could have tapped into sort of how lost and desperate I felt that it could have been really helpful to maybe, um, not that I would trade any of my experiences, to, but to give me, maybe give me a little bit straighter of a path. So I started really looking into positions like that and um, focused in on academic advising because it triggered all of those things for me, working with students. So I was using all the skills I'd picked up you know, in Africa and in Utah. Um, but it was also um, in a university setting, which I loved anyway, but also had this kind of business sense to it too, of all the organization and managing people's uh, records and things like that. So yeah, I got that job. And, and this was the first time that I felt like I had found a fit and I had found a place that I could not just explore, but I could really like dig in and really um, thrive in that environment, which was a very new feeling and very, very exciting <laughs> for me. I bet, I bet. <laughs> so um, yeah, and, and I loved the position and the students and I was able to speak at conferences and, you know, like travel and go to different things like that. But in the academic world, there were limitations because I had a bachelor's degree. So there was sort of this push that if I wanted to go further, if I wanted to teach more classes or do things like that, that I would need a master's. So I started looking into master's programs almost kind of begrudgingly as much as I loved education. I felt like they were, I was being forced, you know, like, <laughs> um, so 
for many people maybe not know, but if you work in a university, oftentimes your degrees are free, which is awesome. So I found, you know, this communication master's at the university I was working at um, and actually started the classes and realized instantly that I really hated it and I didn't like the class and it wasn't going to work for me. And my thought process with that was if I am going to invest time and energy and brain power into something, it has to be something that I'm passionate about and that I love. So I started expanding outside of the university I was looking at and looking for programs that match that. And for me, this is kind of full circle moment coming back to my experience in Ghana because it was such a jarring experience that I almost felt like I kind of put it away a little bit because I just didn't understand it enough. But when I was looking for master's programs, I was like, that's what I want to learn more about. I want to know what I was seeing and issues of um, development and economics and all of these. Um, So found the position or found the master's program at Northeastern, which they have such a great hybrid program of online learning. They've really kind of perfected that. So I was able to stay in my position, work on this master's program. And it, the master's program was like, um, how do I even say it? Like all of the holes that life had sort of drilled into me over the last few years, that program just started filling them back in. Um, It started answering questions that I didn't even realize I had. It sort of inspired me again back into that, that global sense that I had been kind of disoriented about. And I just absolutely fell in love with that program and it added so much to my life. Yeah, and um, so you have your master's in international relations. Right, yeah. Amazing, yeah. okay. Yeah, <laughs> and so through that opportunity, you know, the doors just, it opened. I was researching educational opportunities for refugees and focused in on Jordan with the Syrian refugee crisis. I interviewed a woman who had been working to bring educational opportunities to refugees. And by the end of that conversation, she had said, hey, do you want to go with me to Jordan? So I got to go to Jordan and, um, you know, work directly with refugees and people who are bringing education. So just like all of a sudden my world that I had been worried was just, had crumbled beneath me, just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it was just such a cool feeling. Um, And with that, my experience at Northeastern was so powerful, even distance. I was in Indiana, this was in Boston, um, that I decided I wanted to finish my master's program on the ground in Boston. So (laughs) moved to Boston and finished my master's there um, and just wanted to kind of stay connected to the university and got a position at Northeastern actually in their international advancement office, which was great. But again, it was a great position that didn't quite fit. It, it checked enough, but not quite enough. Um, and I tried to get really involved in the Boston community. I started volunteering at, um, the, the United Nations of Greater Boston organization and various things like that. But I couldn't, I still felt like I was getting closer, but I wasn't quite finding my fit yet. And I started thinking of 
other knowledge that I wanted that I hadn't quite gotten. My master's was just like, it felt like a starting point, but I wanted like so much more. So that's when I found the doctorate of law and policy at Northeastern and (laughs) started that program. Even though I had promised my husband, I would wait at least a year between my master's and anything else. I actually only made it six months. (laughs) (laughs) So I started that program. And again, it was just like, I fulfilled me in ways that I didn't even know I needed. Just the information was so exciting. It was a cohort. We met all the time in Boston. So I got to know this group of people really well. And through my research, I started honing in on refugee and asylum issues because that was really the world that I wanted to be in, but I didn't really know how to get there. Um, So I had been focusing most of my research overseas, but with um, the 2016 election, a lot of the focus shifted back to domestic issues. You know, people, the global sense um, was stalled a little bit. And so I started even myself going, okay, well, we have these, immigration is a huge issue in this country, like, but I'm not even paying attention. I'm over here. So let me really hone in on this. And my research started focusing on asylum in the United States. And I actually had no intention of taking the asylum position. I hope my bosses don't listen to this, but um, I applied just to see what the process was because I wanted to understand who these people were that were in charge of this system and in charge of the people that were using the system. But then they, I kept going through the process, got the offer, and I just said, well, I guess... Um, why not? Like, what do I have to lose at this point? This is what my research is. This is the world I wanted to be in. What better way to really see what's going on than to be inside the system itself? And so, yeah, I took the position and moved from Boston to Texas to work on the border. (laughs) And then uh, in the meantime, I was finishing up my doctorate. So I was doing both, um, which was really challenging, but everything was aligned. So I have never been more stretched in my entire life, but I have never been more content in my entire life because everything I was doing, every class I was taking, everything in my research, my job, my training, all of it matched. And it ticked every box that I had been looking for and kind of identified along the way. So that's how we got here. (laughs) It's such an incredible story. And I wanted you to tell the whole thing because, (laughs) you know, I think there's, there's this mystery, not mystery, but this misnomer that you, you know, you go to college to figure out what you're going to be. And in some cases you don't even go to college, you start working, but this expectation that when you become this adult at 18 or 21, that you somehow know what you want to do. And, you know, I think what's beautiful in your story is that you were very intentional in every move, but at every chapter you acquired new information. And you kept a healthy sense of curiosity along the mm-hmm. path. Um, and like you said, sometimes it's, <laughs> it's better to know what you don't want, or it's easier to know what you don't want than to necessarily know what you do want and that you, you continue to search, which is, you know, I think something that a lot of women t- tend to struggle with, uh, doing things that we don't know that we can do. We want to be, have a guarantee that we can, that we, we know mm-hmm. that we can check the boxes, we meet the criteria, um, and you know, in, in most of these jobs you've described, uh, you've you've never you've literally never done that job before, <laughs> and you go and in most cases you've moved to a new country, you've moved to a new state, and you do this job that you've never done. Yes. Um, walk me through what 
you know, what's the thought process? If somebody's wanting to be more, you know, be able to take more risks, be more willing to do it, like, what is it that allows you to take these chances and be, you know, to, to, to do the things that you, you haven't actually done before, but you're, you're willing to try them? Yeah. So, so actually this is, this is a really great question because, um, it, there was a very defining moment in my life that really has influenced every decision that I made. Um, so I lost my dad very suddenly when I was a senior in high school, you know, right before you're going to college or figuring out you like what your next step. So it was a really profound loss for me at that time. And for him, you know, he was there one day and gone the next with, with absolutely no warning that that was coming. And so this solidified a couple of lessons for me that have really impacted my decisions overall. So the first is that we control so very little in our lives, you know, as much as we would love to feel like we're in control and sometimes need to feel like we're in control. It was burned into me really early that, um, there's not a lot that we control as far as, um, the big picture stuff. And I think a lot of us might be feeling that even now with COVID, I mean, we were, our life was one day here. It was different the next. Um, and we're all kind of going through that process right now of just realizing, oh, we're not actually totally in control of the things. You know, we can control what we eat or how much we exercise or who we hang around, but otherwise it's not a lot. So um, I think that for some people that sounds really, really scary, but I also think it can be the most freeing part of our lives. And so for me, after, you know, obviously the grieving process and some of the trauma that came with a loss like that, it really did set me free. You know, my dad was only 49 years old when he died. And I remember wondering, was he happy with the overall experience of his life? You know, had he done what he wanted? Had he been happy in his jobs or career or or anything? And I became really aware that every day adds to the experience of our lives in one way or another. So when I put those two things together, you know, there's not a lot we can control and we have such a short time to build the experience we have in this world. I started to ask myself in any situation, like, how does this add to my overall experience of my life? And so when I applied that to careers or the experiences I wanted to have or thought were interesting to have, or if you're in a career with a toxic work culture or unfulfilling positions or bad managers or whatever it is, if that is adding to negatively to my overall life experience, it's not worth it um, is really what it boiled down to. (laughs) So yeah, it was, so all of these experiences, I think I was driven of just going, wow, well, if the rules don't, not that they don't matter, but if the rules can be changed so quickly, then why not write my own rules or why not write my own path? Why not go for what sounds really interesting, get as much as I can out of it, and, and when it's not working anymore, move on and, and go from there. Yeah. Oh, what an incredible story. And through such a difficult time to be able to take away such valuable, meaningful life lessons that you can take with you that have really allowed you to be open and free to, to try these things. That's incredible. And something you touched on, I want to talk a little bit more about was this idea of, is it adding to your experience? Mm-hmm. Um, because again, I think this hits on a theme for women that can be particularly challenging, which is prioritizing yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
when you think about, you know, yourself, you oftentimes immediately think I'm being selfish. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for you, when you're thinking like, is this adding to my experience? You know, can you help maybe again, give some guidance of like, how do, how do you go about this process of, you know, listening to yourself, being in tune with, you know, is if, if you're getting a no, this is not adding to my experience, mm-hmm. you know, how, how might somebody listening be able to evaluate um, am I in a good situation? Am I not in a good situation? Um, is this somewhere I should stay? Do I need to make changes? How do they go about doing that and figuring out if, if their experience is adding to their life? Yeah. You know, I, I'll kind of put this in a career like mindset just because I think it adds to the um, explanation. But if you think about it, like anytime you take a position at an organization, you're offered benefits, you're oppor- you know, offered opportunities to grow with the organization, but you also make trade-offs as far as like the number of hours you're expected to work, your commuting time, you know, who you're interacting with, and in general, your overall feelings about the mission and the goals of, of the place. So starting a new job is almost like starting a new relationship in some ways because you're both really excited at the beginning and there's all these possibilities and you're hoping for a really great long-term relationship. But just as relationships happen, um, over time you might start seeing you know, patterns or trends that don't work for you anymore. Um, and it doesn't always, it's not like you wake up one day and go, oh, like this isn't working for me anymore. I think it's paying attention to... Do you feel like you can communicate with your boss and your your long term goals are heard and understood, or um, do you feel excited to go to work, or are you like hating the idea of going to work every day? And I think that when you tune into the little cues in your own life of those kind of things, you start recognizing when the situation has turned not you know like a negative situation. And obviously we all have days that, oh, no, we don't want to go to work like, and things are not great, but it's, it's overall, like, how am I feeling about the situation that I'm in? And are there indicators that are showing me that it's not getting me where I want to be? And it's um, not where I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think it's great. And I think it's one of those things that the most important is uh, just paying attention yeah, you know, and it, it so it sounds like there's there's some there's some good things that you're saying as far as questions you can ask yourself and be mindful of, and I think there's also um, just the acknowledgement that this is a very normal dynamic of a relationship of that mm-hmm. you know you go in with the best of intentions and that um, sometimes they don't work out and that uh, that's okay mm-hmm. yeah that 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 just means it's not that the shoe didn't fit but that's a, that's all right not to use a Disney princess reference. (laughs) No, that's exactly it. And I think like we tend to, well, and maybe not everyone, but I know for me, there's, I definitely have a tendency to just like, uh, get into a position. So for instance, I took a position and I'll leave the name out, but it was like, yes, like this is awesome. It ticks all my boxes. Like it's the, it's a prestigious title. It's a prestigious place. Like I get to travel and all of these things. And um, as I started realizing that it was kind of a toxic work environment and, and no, I wasn't excited. I didn't feel like I had direction. I couldn't get direction even when I voiced that I needed it kind of thing. I think that we have to be okay with being disappointed at that outcome and recognizing that it's not a failure. It's not even a failure on either side. It's just going like, oh man, I really thought that this 
that the the trade off that I was that I was willing to give was going to match what they were willing to give. And when I realized that's not the case, it's there's a grieving process I think that you have to go through. But then also realizing like, but this isn't. It's not worth long term the trade off that I'm giving versus what they're giving. Right. I'm curious. You know, again, I think for somebody that's in the process, right? Like there's people listening that they they don't know that whole feeling yet, right? They still have some of those holes you described that are not being filled by the job, mm-hmm. the career that they're in. If there's any sort of advice or, or something that, you know, brought you peace, helped you kind of keep hope that, you know, there was going to be some, there was something out there, you were, you were going to find it or, you know, there was, there was more for you. What, mm-hmm. what helped you kind of keep keep the faith, if you will, that there was, go- there was something that you were being called to do. You just were going, it was just a matter of time before you found it. Yeah. You know, this, this is a really interesting question because I've kind of asked myself that sometimes I, sometimes I even doubted my own, like what, I feel like I'm chasing something that I can't even identify. And that is very much not the way society wants us to act. Um, and so I think my advice would be to not quiet that part of yourself. If that drive is there or that even if you cannot identify it and it is just this unknown force that sort of lives in you and drives in you, like listen to that voice very, very clearly. And I'm not saying like, you know, go in tomorrow and quit your job or anything like that. But if like let's say your dream is to become a a baker or, you know, the best pastry chef in the world, find ways to incorporate that into your life every day and find you, the path will kind of open itself up. I think when you are listening very intently to that voice and not quieting it and not questioning it and not letting anybody else tell you that it doesn't make any sense. Um, I think that is key. You make such a great point, which is, you know, I think so often we get so hung up on the how behind mm-hmm. it that we, we don't ever start. And mm-hmm. I love this idea that you talk about of incorporating, you know, if you, you, you feel this pull to something, and even if you know directionally what it is to just start testing out, to start incorporating it, find ways to start connecting to that community that is doing the thing that you're looking for. Um, well, that's very powerful. I think that's such a valuable thing of just get started, take a step. Um, yeah. you know, you don't have to, you don't have to bite off the whole thing at once, but right. you'll, you'll never know if you never start. And you, you kind of mentioned something that I think I, I should definitely tap into as well is, um, don't be afraid to voice what you're looking for. Um, and what I mean by that is, when I first moved to Boston and I, I was like, okay, I'm getting closer. Like I kind of know what world I'm looking for. I would literally message people and say, Hey, I would love to talk to you. It looks like you have this experience. How I would love to hear how you got there. Or if there were volunteer positions that were, were dealing with different issues that I was interested in, I had no problem signing up, you know, like, and, and, and I will say like 90% of them didn't really go anywhere because that also wasn't a good fit, but just showing up and going to that meeting or going to that lecture or having coffee with somebody who has something on their profile or resume that resonates with you. It goes so far. If nothing else, that information that you gather from those 
those tasks and those activities and those interactions, it, it, it plants a seed that might inspire you down the line. Um, I know I mentioned it a little bit, but when I, that the wilderness therapy job that I did in Utah, that literally came from a conversation with a friend probably two years before that. And they just mentioned that that was a thing and it planted a seed that then later on I go, wait a second, somebody mentioned something about this. Let me look into it. So I think like exposing yourself to all of that. No, you're not going to go to a lecture and then your world's going to be different that night, but it will plant a seed that, that motivates you in some direction that eventually leads to a step, which eventually leads to like 10 more steps and so on. So, you know, Liz, a lot of who might be listening, they're, they're going to be at varying stages of their careers. But, you know, for, for anyone, I think this is pertinent of, we all have those things that we've learned on our journey. Yeah. And we, you know, we, we think, man, if I could go back and tell myself uh, that, that would have set me so much further ahead, or it maybe would have given me a leg up or saved me heartache. Um, mm-hmm. So when you think about, um, you know, either the advice that you would go back and tell yourself at the starting out, launching into your career, um, or, or even advice that somebody's given you that you've used to navigate through your career, what, what would you go back or what would you want, you know, 25-year-old yourself to know or to have um, starting this journey? Yeah. You know, I, um, it's interesting sometimes I think that we separate our professional selves and our personal selves. We kind of do this divide. My, my advice to young people just starting their career out is spend even more time than you necessarily would in your professional life. Invest in you as a person and discovering your most authentic self, whatever that looks like. I have found in a very profound way that the more that I've invested in um, addressing any issues that I might have or facing some of the shortcomings that I have or um, looking at some of the strengths that I have and really going for that. And most of the time in my personal life, I have found that that has profoundly impacted my professional choices and my professional moves and how I'm able to navigate different environments. And I don't know that we stress that enough in our society, but I think that we should is take those those first steps out of college and into your new career um, or even out of high school if that's where you're at. Take those first steps and yes, you need a job and you need to to work and you need to be in environments, but spend equal amount of time investing in your person and your interests and your flaws and (laughs) your strengths and all of that. And I I guarantee it will pay off in the long run. And having said that also to be patient with where you're at at that very moment. Um, You know, I'm sure we all have the friends, or maybe you're a person like this that had said, well, by 30, I wanted to do this. And then I wanted to do this by this time. And you know, the timeline, as we've talked about, sometimes is so far out of your control, but if you're continuously investing in your person, all of those experiences are meaningful, whatever timeline it's on. So I think that, yeah, if I could, if I could go back to my 25 year old self and just say, you're investing in the right things, you know, those books that you're reading or conversations that you're having, and the work that, that I feel like I did figuring out my authentic self, it's paid off tremendously. So that would be my biggest piece of advice for everyone. 
Yeah. Yeah. If I could take a leap and summarize, it's kind of, if you, if you understand who you are, then you'll figure out where you're meant to be. Yeah. Investing and understanding what you're, you know, we, we have dreams, we have aspirations, we're ambitious, we want to go somewhere. But if you don't do the hard work of understanding who you are, what you want, what fills your cup, mm-hmm. um, that it will be harder, it'll be harder to find mm-hmm. that, that professional um, path and aspirations that, you know, somebody who's ambitious is striving for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Well, thank you so much yeah. for, for your time and for being here and for sharing your stories. It just is such an incredible background. Um, and just and congratulations again on your doctorate. Um, and thank you for the incredible work that you're doing um, as an asylum officer. And thank you for being on Rising Tide. Yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate it.